Well, it is a great privilege to be able to examine the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Is there anything, any better subject that we can devote our mind to than looking at the Lord Jesus Christ himself? This is what our minds are made for right here. And we've started on a journey uh, through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in chapter 2 today. If you'll go ahead and open your Bible there, we'll be in Mark 2, verse 18 through 22. We've been going through this book verse by verse for the past few months, taking our time, studying each section as we come to it. We want to try to cover and preach on the whole counsel of God. We don't want to pick and choose things that are my favorite or your favorite. We want to know what the Lord says straight down. So let's read Mark 2, 18 to 22 now. The Bible says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, him being Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. We'll stop our reading right there for today. So this is the, the third event, if you want to call it that, in this chapter where Mark is demonstrating that there is a real conflict brewing between Jesus and the Pharisees. First, uh, we went over it a few weeks ago, first Jesus forgives a man's sins right in front of them, and they take him for a blasphemer, basically. They say, who can forgive God or who can forgive sins except for God? Even though Jesus proves who he is by healing the man of paralysis, apparently that wasn't good enough for them, which is amazing in itself. They still think he's out of line and he's claiming to be something that he's not. And then he eats and fellowships with tax collectors and sinners. And they don't like that either. Uh, By their standards, a righteous person would never be around people like that. Wouldn't even touch them with a 10-foot pole. And they thought, if Jesus is some kind of religious leader, if he's going to be a teacher, well, he should do what we do. We're the teachers. And we would never eat with sinful, Lawless people like that. 
And then here in our passage today, Jesus further separates himself from the Pharisees by not following their traditions and their man-made laws, we might say. Let's talk about that. A little bit of background about the fasting of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were known to fast twice a week. And we know from historical literature that they chose Mondays and Thursdays. And they thought it was righteous that they did that. They took pride in doing that. You can even look in Luke 18 where Jesus told that parable. We mentioned it last week where there's the tax collector praying and there's the Pharisee praying. And the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, uh, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, he says. And then he adds, I fast twice a week, Luke 18, 12. That just reveals the attitude right there. They thought that this frequent fasting was going to get them somewhere with God. In reality, though, um, like most of what they did, they did it for the show. They did it for the show. Um, it was just... It was just an external act. And what did Jesus say about that kind of uh, showy fasting? Do you remember this? Matthew 6. He said, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. And he says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What was their reward? Men's applause. Men's admiration. They have their reward. That's it. That's all they'll get for that external show. So that's what they were doing ultimately, trying to impress people. Um, But in their system, in their thinking, fasting was what righteous people were supposed to do. And if that's the case, well, then why isn't Jesus teaching his disciples to do that? That was the question being presented to Jesus. Now let me ask you a question and make sure we understand. Was this an example of Jesus breaking the law of Moses to prove a point to them? Did the law of Moses actually command people to fast twice a week? No, it did not. There's only one fast commanded in the Old Testament law and it's on One day a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16.29 says that they were to afflict themselves on that day and do no work. And the phrase afflict yourselves traditionally meant to fast. So nowhere else in the law was Israel commanded to fast. Were there voluntary fasts? Yes. If there was a time of of demonstrating um, repentance or sorrow or mourning or something like that, people would sometimes fast. But the point is, the only thing that Jesus was quote-unquote breaking here was their man-made rules, not God's commandments. And that was, unfortunately, common with the Pharisees of that day. They would take a command of God, 
from the law, and they would, they would amplify it out. And they would surround it with other practices that were more strict than God's law was in some kind of uh, attempt to safeguard God's commandment and prevent themselves and others from breaking the commandment. But the bad part was that their man-made safeguards ended up being treated as equal with Scripture. And that's how they treated it, and that's how they even taught it to others. And so over time, gradually, one fast per year in the law morphed into what was happening in the first century, the time Jesus was on the earth. It morphed into the Pharisees fasting twice a week and teaching and expecting others to do the same. So with that in mind, do you see the assumption by these people in the question that they, that they pose to Jesus? The assumption is that people who are really trying to please God are people who are doing exactly what the Pharisees do and who follow exactly what the Pharisees taught. And then Jesus comes along and doesn't fit in their mold at all. He doesn't fall in line. He doesn't teach his disciples to fast like the Pharisees did. In fact, I bet he told his disciples specifically not to fast. The reason I say that is because the way that he answers this question, he's indicating pretty clearly that he thinks it's actually inappropriate to be fasting right now. So Jesus' basic answer is, it is totally inappropriate to fast while I'm here with you. Verse 19 so that's why I've entitled the message Fasting Versus Feasting. Jesus essentially says, right now, you should be feasting, not fasting. This is a joyous occasion. Look at what he says with me. Look down at your Bible, verse 19. What we have here, by the way, is the first parable recorded in the book of Mark. We're going to see three parables, actually. Here's parable one, the bridegroom. He says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What's he saying? He's saying he is the bridegroom, which is an amazing statement in itself, by the way, that we don't have time to go into. But... And his disciples are the wedding guests. And his presence with them on earth is a joyous occasion, not unlike a wedding feast. It's time to celebrate, in other words, not mourn. So to fast right now, according to Jesus, makes no sense at all. Danny Aiken says this, The pertinent question isn't why Jesus' disciples didn't fast, but why the Pharisees didn't feast and celebrate the presence of the Messiah. They've been looking for their Messiah to come for years. And he comes, he's finally here, and you're going to fast? How many of you have ever been involved in planning a wedding? Raise your hand. Lots of you. That's a lot of work, right? 
Yes. Imagine that you're living for a moment in Jesus' day and you're involved in planning a first century Jewish wedding. And just so you know, a first century Jewish wedding wasn't like a wedding today where we have a 30-minute ceremony and a two-hour reception or something like that. A wedding at that time was basically a seven-day feast. It was a time of just extended joy and celebration. And so you plan this wedding and imagine the day rolls around for the wedding feast to kick off and people are dancing, there's music, all this wonderful food and fellowship and you're kind of busy taking care of things and somebody brings you a plate of food and you say, oh no, it's okay, I'm fasting. They'd be like, what? You're fasting during a wedding feast? That makes no sense. And Jesus is saying exactly that. It makes zero sense to show a sign of sorrow and mourning while the bridegroom is here. We'll tie all these together in just a minute, but he goes on with a second short parable, the parable of the cloth, we might call it. He says, verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, I know that there are very few people who actually sew today, but perhaps there's a few here. Do you sew? Anybody sew? There's a few around. Let me just explain in case we don't get the picture of what Jesus is saying. An old garment had done all of the shrinking that it was going to do, okay? And if you take that old garment, if it got a hole in it and it needed patching, you had to be very careful. Because if you took a piece of new, unshrunk cloth and tried to patch that to the old, already shrunk cloth, what's going to happen? Well, the new cloth is going to start shrinking and it's going to separate itself and tear away from the part that's already done all of its shrinking. And the tear that you're trying to fix isn't even going to compare with the new one. It's going to get worse. You can't mix old and new cloths like that. We'll see Jesus' point in just a minute. But before we do, let's hear the third parable. Verse 22. The parable of the wineskins, we might call it. Jesus says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. So just to explain that one, they would store wine in that day in an animal skin. Mostly they used goat skins. And as the wine would ferment, it would create gases. And the wine skin would expand along with the gases. But after a while, a wine skin would get old and it would no longer be as elastic as it once was. And so if you tried to put new wine into an old, rigid wine skin, it's just going to burst. 
And of course, when that happens, Jesus said, not only do you lose a wineskin, you lose the wine that you were trying to store as well. So the point is the same as the cloth parable. You, you don't mix old wineskins with new wine. Now, what is Jesus saying with these parables? Here is the point. Jesus is beginning something new. Warren Wiersbe says, Jesus came to introduce the new, not to patch up the old. He came to introduce something new, not to patch up the old. He's not here to patch up their form of Judaism. He's not there to reform the bad practices of the day and somehow return the Jewish religion to its most pure form. He's not there to add himself on to the Mosaic law or on to the Pharisees' man-made laws. Jesus was there to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled it. There's a big difference. Do any of you have oak trees on your property? Good amount of people. If you got oak trees... You've got acorns, right? Some of us say acorns. (laughs) An acorn contains the seed of an oak tree, right? So think about this with me. If you wanted to destroy an acorn, you could do it by smashing the acorn, I suppose. Or you could destroy the acorn by permitting it to grow and fulfill itself, so to speak. In both instances, uh, the acorn has passed off the scene. It has been done away with, but in the second instance, it's done away with by coming to its fulfillment in an oak tree. That, in effect, is what Jesus did to the Mosaic law. Uh, He did not come along and say about the law, I have no idea why all of you are following this old set of laws for so long. They're pointless. He didn't come along and say that. No, he doesn't do away with the Mosaic law in its entirety. He, He does away with the shadows presented in it. There's still... Um, there's still moral elements of the Old Testament law that we should still absolutely follow. No question about it, right? Amen. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't harm others. We shouldn't serve idols. The law of God spells out for us how we are to love our neighbor. That's a, you know, it can be like a nebulous concept Jesus says, love your neighbor. How do I do that? The law will show you how. The law of God spells out what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And so those things don't pass away. Those things don't change. But what does change is the, the pictorial or the shadowy parts of the law, like the ceremonial laws and the civil laws, the laws that marked out Israel from their surrounding uh, pagan nations. I want to make that distinction because I don't think that every part of the law of Moses is now a moot point. Uh, God doesn't change and therefore his moral standard that's reflected in his law doesn't change. But what does change is the parts of the law that were intended to picture Christ all along. They were there to point to him. Those parts have been fulfilled, right? So we ought not think of ourselves as lawless People, God's law is good and holy. It's a reflection of his character. And there's things that we do follow in the law. And there are things that we absolutely are no longer required to follow. Like animal sacrifices. That's an obvious one, right? Why don't we do that anymore? Because Christ fulfilled that shadow. He is our sacrifice, right? And we don't keep the Passover by killing a lamb every year and eating it. Why? Because Jesus is our Passover lamb. So in a sense, we do keep the Passover, but we keep the true Passover. The one that the old Passover pointed to. And then there are civil laws, like I said before, intended to mark out Israel from all these surrounding nations. And I'm just saying all this as a quick side note so that when we talk about Jesus fulfilling the law and we talk about the old covenant or the old system you'll know what's meant okay so back to what Jesus was saying in these parables he's saying you can't patch me the Messiah onto your old system that isn't the way the system is intended to work the old is meant to give way to the new. The old foreshadowed the new all along. And so when the new came, Jesus, the old passed away. And the book of Hebrews is key to understanding that relationship between the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Just read Hebrews chapter 8. So when Jesus came and he, he laid down his life on the cross, that was both uh, the end of a chapter as well as the beginning of a new chapter in redemptive history. So no reason to hang on to the pictures when the real thing is here. Jesus is our high priest now, not a Levitical priest, right? Jesus is our sacrifice now, not a lamb or a bull or a goat or a pigeon and those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. Jesus, once and for all, handled it all. He's our sacrifice. And then we think about the parts of the temple and the tabernacle where God actually dwelt, that most holy place where only one guy, the high priest, could go in, and he could only do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. When Jesus came, the curtain was torn in two. And God was saying, now everybody may come to the throne of grace if you're coming through Jesus. It's open through the blood of Christ. So the entire ceremonial and civil system 
done away with. Not by smashing the acorn, but by letting it blossom into the fulfillment that Christ brought. It served God's purpose and it has been brought to its climax. He was inaugurating the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about. So, let's think through the truth that Jesus is communicating with that, with those parables, and see if we can just draw a few applications. I've got four today. Here's the first one. And by the way, when we talk about applications, don't think that I've exhausted the application list here. You are to be reading the word for yourself, and God will show you things in your own life that pertains to that that you're reading that I won't ever think of. I'm just giving us some general ones, okay? So here's the first one. It's a little tongue-in-cheek, I guess. Sometimes it's just as provocative to break tradition as it is to break God's law. That's sad, but true, isn't it? Jesus wasn't breaking any commandment of God by not fasting, but he was breaking a tradition of men. And they, again, had become so attached to this man-made stuff that to let go of it seemed like sin to them. But it wasn't. It wasn't sin. Jesus was going with what God's will was, not the will of man who added many things to what God said. So maybe this is a caution to ourselves this morning. Um, never let tradition become equal to or higher than Scripture. Never let tradition become equal to or higher than Scripture. There's a truth that came out of the Reformation called sola scriptura. That's Latin for Scripture alone. And that just means that Scripture alone is our only infallible rule of faith and practice. In other words, there are no other keyword infallible authorities on earth. Sola Scriptura doesn't mean you shouldn't read helpful books about the Bible. It doesn't mean you shouldn't trust other people to counsel you. It doesn't mean you shouldn't read or study theological works from history or it doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to pastors or elders or church leaders. None of that. It just means that here's the bottom line. We ought not to trust any church or any system of thought that's passed down through tradition without examining it to see if it accords with Holy Scripture. Scripture alone is infallible because it's inspired by God. The church isn't infallible or anything else. And if scripture and tradition are ever at odds, scripture should always win out. It should be the thing that we hold to, not the other way around. So what God says about something always trumps what men say, right? The book of Acts commends this certain people named the Bereans because it says they were constantly examining, daily it said, they were examining daily what their Bible teachers were teaching them to see if those things were so, it says. Acts 17, 11. Is what I'm hearing biblical? That's what they were asking. 
and they were going to their Bibles over and over again. What does that tell you? The standard is the Bible, not anything else. We, we should all be Bereans. And then along these same lines, we could also look at it on a, um, on a smaller scale, perhaps. There are uh, traditions and habits that we all get tangled up in, aren't there? And we should always be willing to examine our traditions to see if they're scriptural. We should always be willing to do that. We should constantly ask, I know we've done this for so long, some sort of way, but is this what Scripture teaches? We should ask that about anything. And I don't have anything on my mind. I'm not trying to change anything in this church. Not anything major like what might seem like me bringing this up. No, I'm just talking about anything. Let's examine everything we do. Is this what Scripture teaches? Because doing something a certain way for a long time doesn't mean it's scriptural necessarily, right? Also, what about this aspect of quote-unquote tradition? Um, What about various Scripture interpretations? Sometimes those die hard, don't they? <laughs> Have you ever been taught a, uh, a particular way of interpreting a passage of Scripture and then later on, whether through your own study or somebody showing you, you came to see that that passage actually meant something very different and you were wrong the whole time? Anybody, anybody have to test to that? <laughs> I've been there too. Amen. That's how God teaches us, Right? You and I may have been brought up believing the Bible teaches A or B about this particular topic, and yet, upon careful examination, it doesn't actually teach what you thought it taught. So it's a good thing to have your mind changed by Scripture, right? We are always to pray that God would make us willing to go wherever Scripture leads, even if it's very different than what we were brought up with or or were taught at one time. We can definitely bring our own biases and our own opinions to Scripture, can't we? And use Scripture to confirm what we already thought. That's called eisegesis, big word. Reading something into the text that you brought yourself. What we want to try to do always is called exegesis. That's when we draw out what's already there, right? So we set our opinions and biases aside and come to Scripture like this. Lord, teach me. Wherever you lead, I'll go. That's the humble attitude. So traditions, habits, customs, Scripture interpretations, long-held opinions, these are things that often die very hard with all of us. Pray that God would just make us willing to go wherever Scripture teaches Not what we want to force it to say or not what modern sensibilities of the culture say that it should say. But let's carefully examine the text for ourselves freshly all the time. I think that's an application here. Jesus could have said, have you examined your practice of fasting? Is that biblical? If they ever thought about that or not. Number two. You can't add Jesus to any other religious system. 
You sew the new cloth under the old one, it's going to tear. You put new wine into old wineskins, they're going to burst. And Jesus was not willing to just continue with the status quo and let people tack him on to what they were already doing to try to make themselves right with God. He called for a radical change. That's why it's called the new covenant. It's called the new covenant for a reason, right? It's not the modified old covenant. It's not the old covenant (laughs) 2.0. Jesus was calling for a radical departure of the religion of that day. The religion had become a religion of works, of law-keeping. And he was ushering in salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And I wonder if we sometimes even fall into the trap of uh, treating Jesus as an add-on. Do we teach others to to look at him that way? You know, is our message, um, Jesus is what's missing in your life. If you had him, your life would be complete. That sounds good on one level, I guess. But it kind of makes it seem like people can have a pretty good life, pretty good life by themselves and then add on the final Jesus-shaped puzzle piece and bingo, everything's complete. But there's a reason scripture teaches that salvation is a radical thing. Jesus calls it a new birth, for instance. A new birth, John chapter 3. That's pretty radical. That's a totally new beginning. That's making you a brand new creature with a new heart and an enlightened mind and new desires and so forth. And he teaches that his his followers should deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. And Christ is like this um, invaluable pearl. He says, you don't hang on to all your other stuff and add the pearl You sell all that you have to get that pearl. You go from serving your own interests to serving his interests. You go from being your own master to having him as your master. We could go on and on with the evidence in Scripture and what pictures that radical change, but Christianity is not tacking Jesus onto whatever good things we thought we were doing before. God actually helps us to see that everything we were striving for before is worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. That's what Paul said in Philippians. It's all like manure compared to him, Paul said. Like the Isaac Watts hymn that we sing says, when we survey the wondrous cross, that last verse says, he teaches in the, in the hymn, it's like everything else goes into the waste bin because he writes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, everything. So we don't tack him on to any other system that we've built or add him on to our life that's just missing the Jesus part. No, it's a radical start over. From the Spirit. Number three, Jesus is interested, excuse me, Jesus is not interested in mechanical, heartless, 
religiosity, I'll call it. He's not interested in religious um, formalism. These people ask him, why don't you teach your disciples to fast like the Pharisees do? And I wonder if his eyes got big. You want to talk about that? (laughs) Knowing that all they were doing was for external show. He's not at all interested in that. He's not interested in heartless religion. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah 58. I want you to see something in this passage. Isaiah 58, just going to read a few verses from there. Isaiah 58 and verse 3. God God is rebuking these hypocrites for the type of fasting that they were doing. Listen to this. Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 9. says, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? That's what the people were asking God. Don't you see us fasting, God? And then God answers, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And then he says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Hmm. God was not interested in mechanical rituals where the heart was not right before him. And that passage demonstrates that. God is not pleased with the externalism, but with, instead, with a love for God that leads to obedience and holiness. That's what that just described. Obedience from the heart, not an outward show. And we see it in other places as well in Scripture. Um, One time the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and they asked him something very similar to this passage. They say, How come your disciples break the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands when when they eat? They had developed this ritualistic ceremonial washing that you were supposed to do before you eat. And listen to what Jesus tells them in Matthew 15, 3. He puts it back on them. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And he goes on to say that 
you're the people Isaiah prophesied about when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There it is. So the word to us today, how's our hearts? What's your heart like? Are we constantly concerned with cleaning up the outside of the cup? Meanwhile, the inside has got mold all in it. Do we engage ourselves in these outward rituals and just care little for what's taking place in here? It is very possible. It is very possible for a person to come to church even something as good as attending the meetings of the local church, it is, it is possible for a person to come week in and week out and have little to no affection for God at all. And Jesus calls that out for what it is. It is vain worship. It is not real. It's worthless. Part of what makes worship true worship and part of what makes obedience true obedience is the intention of your heart behind it. So ask yourself, what am I doing to cultivate that kind of love and affection in my heart? It's not going to happen on its own. You can't muster that up. You have to go daily to the Word of God over and over. You got to go to the, to the stream. You got to let Him lead you to the green pastures of Scripture. That's where your affections will be built and will be stoked. He wants the heart. Didn't Jesus say part of the greatest commandment of all was to love God with all your heart? In Ephesians says that we are to serve God not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, Ephesians 6, 6. We could go on and on, but examine your heart. How is it with your heart? How is it with your heart? If it's cold, if it's dry, if there's little affection for Christ there, pray that God would fan those smoldering embers into flame so that you can live for him from the heart. And the way you cultivate that is, like I said, through all of the means of grace that God has given you. Scripture, prayer, the local church, the ordinances of the church, baptism, uh, the Lord's Supper. All those things are means of grace that God gives us to grow us in Him and fan into flame those affections for Him. Read good books. I'm always suggesting good books because I think, one way for me to say it, is I think the book will fan your affection into flame. I read all of them before I pass them along to you, and I wouldn't pass it if it wasn't good for that purpose. Lastly for today, the appropriate emotion over Jesus' coming is joy. And I don't mean a flippant, uh, bubbliness, a shallow type of joy, an outward show joy. I just mean Jesus came to bring true joy to mankind. Uh, he came to heal us of our sin disease. 
Our biggest problem. He came to forgive our sins in Christ. He came to make us sons of God. He came to reconcile us back to God. He came to give us eternal life. All those things should produce joy in our hearts. And I think that was one thing that Jesus is saying with his bridegroom analogy. Your Messiah is here with you. It's a time of joy because your salvation is here. It's a time for feasting, not fasting. It's a time of rejoicing, not sorrowing. My disciples aren't fasting because the Savior of the world is here. One day, he says, I'll be taken away, and then they'll fast. I think he was speaking of his crucifixion. But they wouldn't have to fast long there, would they? Joy came in the morning. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Praise the Lord. The Christian faith uh, contains the greatest news that mankind has ever heard. And it's not even close to anything else. It's not even in the same ballpark. And these things are a joy produce. It's a joy producing gospel. Do you remember when those uh, angels appeared to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born in Luke chapter two? And they say, behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy, which shall be for all people. Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior which is Christ the Lord. We have so much to be joyful about. We can even be joyful when we're crying. You can be hurting and yet always rejoicing because we know that whatever happens to us here, there is glory coming that is not even worthy to be compared with this little bit of pain that we're experiencing right now. Romans eight eighteen. The glory that is coming is in another league, not even close to your suffering. So are you rejoicing today? If you're not, is it because you lost sight of what Christ came for? Have you lost sight of the gospel? When's the last time you preached the gospel to yourself? When's the last time you cheered yourself up in Christ and what he's done and told yourself? Your future, if you are in him, is very secure and very bright. You have a lot to look forward to. If you don't know him, come to him today in repentance and faith. He will not turn you away. He will save you from the coming judgment that's due you for your sin. And he'll forgive you and he'll fill you with joy unspeakable and full of glory as the scripture says. So, for all those in Christ, the end of this epic story that we're in right now is that Christ wins. And he's our captain. And in the end, if you flip to the end, he brings his people all the way safely home. And he prevents, excuse me, he presents us blameless before the Father. And we enter into eternal life simply on the merits of what Christ has done for us and we spend eternity in never-ending happiness with Him. 
Praise the Lord. I hope these things have encouraged your heart today. Think about them. Read that passage again. Think about them often. And let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us the gospel of Mark that teaches us so much about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Lord, help us not to fall into the trap of treating Jesus as some kind of add-on to our lives. Help us not to be hypocrites that seem to worship you externally but are far from you in our hearts. Lord, help us to realize what era we live in in redemptive history. We're in the time of the new covenant that's been inaugurated by the coming of Jesus. Help us not to be tempted to hang on to shadows when the fulfillment has come. And help us to be joyful that we are part of the bride of Christ. And all this has been accomplished solely through your amazing grace and mercy on sinners like us. We thank you and praise you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.